All right, good morning. Welcome to our next week of being scattered together. Uh, church family, I, I miss you. I, I love you. Just want to continue to let you know that we are praying for you and praying for, for God's wisdom as we move ahead, but trusting that he will lead us and praising him that, that although we cannot gather physically in this space right now, that, that, that the building may be closed, but the church is not. Amen? So, church, scattered wherever you are, let's take some time now on God's word. Let's look at a passage here. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you there, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to our passage today that we're going to look at, which is Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. This is the, the longest of the letters, although it's to apparently one of the smallest cities on the list here, but the letter to the church in Thyatira. Let's read what Jesus says through the Apostle John to this church here. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us briefly and then just dig into this passage here. Um, Spirit of God, we invite you once again now to be powerfully present among us as we look at this passage that you inspired your servant John to write down and record for us to read today. We believe this is what the Spirit wants to say to our church, to the churches from back in this first century all the way till today. So help us to have ears to hear as you say. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You tell us plainly, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, the scene, as I imagine it anyways in my head, uh, looks very much like something out of the movie Braveheart. If you've seen that, where, where William Wallace gives his famous Sons of Scotland speech at the Battle of Stirling to, to a, a group of 
cowardly, frightened Scottish soldiers unwilling to confront the English forces that, that are tearing their country apart. I'm referring, of course, to that epic scene recorded for us in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel, where the prophet Elijah stands before the gathered people of God on this battlefield, as it were, in defiance of Jezebel and the 450 prophets of Baal, saying to them, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. The question is really, it's a question of, of loyalty in the end. Uh, 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 like reminding the people of Israel plainly, like, you guys, you've got to pick one. You can't serve both at the same time. You need to choose one of the two options because whatever else you might have going on in your mind, Elijah warns them. There is no hybrid kind of option C where, where you can have the opportunity to worship God and Baal at the same time. That doesn't exist. You've got to pick one. And as someone once said so simply and profoundly, the fence, staying in the middle, the fence belongs to the devil as well. So we are continuing on in this teaching series through the summer months, uh, through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation entitled Dear Church. Again, looking at these seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. But as you've probably already seen, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, as we looked at the first three letters already, there, there's a variety of different issues going on in each one of these churches. And, and Jesus has a, a mix of, of both commendations as well as rebukes for all of these different churches. Different for each one, but a variety of different things going on in each one. And actually, that's something we're going to continue to see in, in the last four letters as we look at them as well. But here's the thing. What, what I love about that, what I love about what we're seeing in, in what's being shown to us here is just the rawness, the, 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 the unfiltered reality of what's being shown to us in these letters. It's actually so encouraging to read that, that, as Eugene Peterson notes, the churches of the Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlors where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They are messy family rooms. Entering a person's house unexpectedly, we are sometimes met with a barrage of apologies, but St. John does not apologize. Things are out of, out of order, to be sure, but this is what happens to churches that are lived in. They are not showrooms, he says. They are living rooms. I love that. But as I pray you've also seen, these letters written to individual churches are also very much written to every church from the first century when they were first written all the way through to today. And the messages that Jesus has for each one of those churches are also very much messages for us in the church still today. And as we come to this letter written to the church in Thyatira, the message that Jesus has for this church in particular has to do with tolerance. Tolerance. Uh, specifically, tolerance of anything within the church that God does not tolerate. What's very interesting to see is actually if you compare the way Jesus both commends and rebukes the church at Ephesus with the way that Jesus commends and rebukes this church here in Thyatira, it's, it's odd. It's almost like, they're almost like a mirror image, like an exact opposite of one another. With the, the church in Ephesus exposing false prophets, hating the things that God hates, but having lost the love that they had at first. And now here, the church at Thyatira being known for the increase of their love, the increase of their works, but tolerating a false prophet among them. 
We'll look more deeply into how and why it is that the church at Thyatira could have allowed such a horrendous thing to happen in their own context. But as we dig into this letter today, I think what you're going to see very quickly is just how incredibly relevant this message to the, to, uh, in, uh, the message of this letter is in particular to the church still today. Uh, for us particularly, gathering in a, in a country like Canada that is known, like worldwide, we're just kind of known, our, our claim to fame is our niceness, our, our, our politeness. To the point where even we like apologize to each other as we're arguing with each other. Hey, listen, I'm sorry, but I think you're dead wrong there. Like, it's crazy. But, but this niceness, this, this politeness, which could lead us to the very same horrendous end as the church in Thyatira. And then even more than that, I believe the message of this letter, it's relevant to any church and in any time or any place as it relates to this warning against the devastating results of compartmentalizing our faith life from our day-to-day life, as though they were these two separate things. That's a message for any church in any time to to, to know and, and be warned against. And so in order to help us understand Jesus' message to this church, as well as avoid making the same errors individually, as well as corporately as a church. We're going to look at how Jesus, first of all, warns the church against the seductive appeal of Jezebel. And then, how Jesus then calls them to the just demands of love. The seductive appeal of Jezebel, the just demands of love. That's what we're going to look at here. So, if you've closed your Bibles, you closed your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again with me to this passage here, Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18. Follow along with me as we listen now to what the Spirit has to say to the church in Thyatira. Okay, let's look first of all at the seductive appeal of Jezebel. The seductive appeal of Jezebel. Now, the placement of this letter immediately following the letter to the church at Pergamum that we looked at last week, I think is is absolutely intentional because when you look at the content of both the letters, actually, you see that they're really they're, they're struggling with a lot of the very same issues. The problem, however, I think was even more pronounced in Thyatira, which scholars tell us was, was a relatively small, otherwise unimportant city in the Roman province of Asia, except for the fact that it was known and prized for the various trades that came out of it. Uh, um, some of the more well-known things that were coming out of there were, were the dyeing of wool, uh, the dyeing of, of uh, cloth, and also metalworks. Well, the, these two things in particular were really well-known trades from this city. But as, as George pointed out last week in his message, each of these trades had formed these really powerful trade guilds, which were very much like in a modern context, like we would know as like uh, trade unions. These really powerful trade guilds within the city. The only difference was that These trade guilds also were directly connected to idol worship as well as worship of Caesar. Like that that made them a little bit different than our modern day work unions. And and these trade guilds, as he was saying, had these these common meals, which regularly occurred among them, where they, they had these feasts with food and drink that was both offered in sacrifice to as well as eaten and drunk in honor and worship of their patron deities. And which apparently often just degenerated into these drunken orgies by the end of them. Which I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to just trust that I don't need to like go over with you why uh, someone with, with a new heart and a new nature as a follower of Jesus could not with any good conscience be a part of. I'm going to just trust that, that you can understand that without me pointing that out to you. But here's the problem. What made 
the decision not to partake in these activities infinitely more difficult was that these trade guilds virtually owned the entire trade industry in the city. They just, they just ran the show, and so it wasn't as simple as just, oh, just leave the trade guild and start your own business. It wasn't as simple as that. Like, to understand this, you, just, you need to get out of our 21st century mindset, get into this first century mindset where, you know, because like today, yeah, listen, you just start a website and suddenly your product is available to an entire global market. But here in this first century context, without the influence as well as the protection of the trade guilds, it was ultimately the very same as just basically to lose your entire business along with any means of providing for yourself and your family. That's what the decision meant for them. I mean, just to give you a modern-day context, this would just be like working for Amazon and then leaving Amazon, saying, I don't want to work for you anymore, and starting my own little Christian bookstore. I mean, you can do that, but, but virtually, like everything from pricing to stock availability to staff to shipping, all those factors are just stacked against you succeeding in any way. Same thing here. And as, already, as has already been said multiple times in the last number of weeks, I, I don't think we really get or understand what this felt like, like as people living in the Western world, we don't understand the kind of economic pressures and costs that these, church, th- th- these churches were suffering here in, in order to seek and to be faithful to Jesus. And I know that's not all of us, there may be some exceptions, but for the most part, we've got no clue what it would mean to look like, to have to choose between faithfulness to Jesus and, and losing your business and going into abject poverty. Like we don't really understand what that feels or looks like. But, enter Jezebel, stage left. Uh, in comes Jezebel, and I say her name with quotation marks because uh, virtually every commentator I read agrees that Jezebel was actually probably not the real name of this uh, false teacher in the church of Thyatira, but more of a symbolic representative name that was intended to imply or evoke a historical memory or meaning. Like in the same way that if you were to refer to somebody who is dishonest a lot of times, refer to them as Pinocchio. Uh, Nobody thinks that that person's name is actually Pinocchio, right? Uh, At least if you know the story, you know that calling someone that is referring, it it evokes the story of of a little boy, a little wooden boy, who every time he lied, his his nose would grow. So exact same thing going on here, only the difference is that the name Jezebel here is referring to a notorious example from Israel's history. So who was Jezebel? She she was this charismatic, wicked foreign queen married to Israel's king at the time, King Ahab, and who brought along with her and who steadily and slowly diffused her worship of foreign gods into Israelite culture and worship. And unfortunately, King Ahab, as John Stott notes, just simply lacked the moral conviction and stamina to withstand her. He just didn't stand up to her and allowed this to happen. And so the conflict that ensued then between Jezebel and God's prophet Elijah uh, who, who had the moral conviction and stamina of like 75 Ahabs, culminated in that epic scene that I described as we began this morning up on Mount Carmel where you got 450 prophets of Baal in front of one altar, Elijah, prophet of God, over here in front of another altar, with, with the God who answers with fire from heaven, proving themselves to be the, the one who is the, the true God. Now, if you don't know that story, never heard that before, just kind of spoiler alert here, the, the, the God of Israel, he is the one who shows up and descends with fire and takes the whole offering and burns it up. The the prophets of Baal are seized and slaughtered that day. As Israel, at least for the moment, hears Elijah's call to to choose whom they will serve, and they choose God. They choose Yahweh at his clear display of of power and superiority. 
The point is, listen, this church in Thyatira, both Jews and Gentiles alike, they, they would have known this story already. This would have been either known to them or told to them already. So, so when they hear the, the, the prophetess being referred to as Jezebel, automatically like, okay, oh, okay, it, it evokes all this cultural and memory and history. They're like, oh, okay, so you're talking about that. And, and, and what, did, what was Jezebel doing in Elijah's day? What was she doing? She had seduced the people of Israel into a hybrid, kind of syncretistic, blended religious fog where they believed that they could worship Yahweh and Baal at the same time. That's what she'd done, which is exactly what the prophetess was teaching in this church at Thyatira. Really solving the problem, as it were, for these Christians who were wanting to be faithful to Jesus, but also facing economic ruin and poverty by not being involved in the trade guilds. Well, this solves the problem for them. You can do both. Just lulling them into this error with her deep teachings Excuse me. that led them to believe in the end that they could eat at the table of demons, involve themselves in sexual immorality, and that had no bearing on their faith with Jesus. No bearing on the relationship with Jesus. Jesus kind of got it. He was just kind of like, yeah, I get it. I understand that, that, that church life and work life, you know, they're not the same thing. That Jesus was just cool with that. That's, that's what she was presenting and, and that people were believing. But when you understand that, that all through the Bible, one of the key images that God uses to describe the nature of his relationship with his people is marriage, and not least of which uh, the, in the New Testament, the, the church itself is described as his bride. Uh, just to recognize that you begin to see that in the same way that a husband and wife commit to complete marital faithfulness to their spouse alone in marriage, so too does God expect complete faithfulness from his redeemed people. That's exactly why, you see, look at verse 22, you see Jesus speaking about those who commit adultery with this Jezebel, Jezebel's children. You see that he's not necessarily referring to literal fornication with her as much as spiritual unfaithfulness. You're, you're, you're giving your worship to someone else or to something else, and that's spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. As G.K. Beale notes, Jezebel incited King Ahab and Israel to compromise and fornicate by Baal worship. And although Baal worship included literal fornication, the emphasis is on spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery, where sexual immorality is applied to Jezebel's efforts to entice Israel to syncretistic idolatry. Okay, but this now, this right here is where that picture that we begin this, Jesus begins this letter to the church at Thyatira as the Son of God with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze is intended to evoke both hope as well as holy fear in, in this church that he's writing to. And in the case of Jezebel and those who follow her teaching, very much the latter, very much the holy fear part. For, for in their case, Jesus' eyes like flaming fire, first of all, reveal that he has, has these eyes of fire that, that are bright and that can see right through all the fog, all the smoke and mirrors of their deep teachings and a flame that will burn away every impurity from his church. His feet like burnished bronze, implying both swiftness and, and beauty, but also a strength and, and power to crush his enemies. And finally, the, the title Son of God which is in direct opposition to the Roman currency of the day, which depicted the emperor Domitian's son as the son of God holding seven stars in his hand. This is a direct 
opposition to that picture, Jesus is saying, I am truly the Son of God. I am the one who sees all and who has all power and who truly searches the mind and the heart and gives to each according to their works, as he says in verse 23. That's me. And what does Jesus see as he walks among the lampstand of Thyatira in particular? Well, as we saw in verse 20, look there. What he sees is that unlike the church in Pergamum that simply had some among them who were uh, held on to some of these same uh, wrong teachings, they, they had some people among them like that. The church at Thyatira actually was tolerating the presence of someone teaching this adulterous, syncretistic doctrine in their church. Now, now there, there's no indication that this, this, this woman was an official leader in the church per se, but if, if the analogy, the historical analogy of Jezebel is intended fully, it could mean that she was perhaps the wife of the pastor or the bishop of that church. Perhaps she was a, a self-appointed prophetess who just kind of put herself forward as, I'm giving you the words of God, whatever it is. But either way, regardless, that the problem for Jesus is much less what she's teaching, although he's not happy about that either, but more why the church is continuing to tolerate her presence among them at all. And it's not explicit, but I wonder, again, contrasting the doctrinally strong yet loveless church in Ephesus with the loving yet doctrinally liberal, doctrinally liberal church in Thyatira, if the reason for the, the, the tolerating Jezebel's presence in their midst wasn't a combination of two things. First of all, a misguided outworking of what it means to be loving as a church, along with the seductive appeal of Jezebel's teaching that, that had solved the problem of faithfulness for Jesus, Faithfulness to Jesus by compartmentalizing their faith life and their work life. I wonder if it wasn't a combination of those two things. And we'll, we'll dig a bit more deeply into what being loving as God's people truly looks like in a minute. But as it relates to compartmentalizing our faith, I think it's worth pausing. Just stopping for a moment, taking time to honestly examine how it is that we too could be in danger of tolerating this same seductive teaching in our own life as well as in the life of our church. So when you think of something like compartmentalizing, what does that mean? Well, I think an easy way to think about it is <clears throat> cut onions. When you chop up onions, aside from making your eyes water, they're very aromatic, right? So if you take cut up onions and just put them on a plate or a bowl and put them in your fridge, well, pretty soon everything in your fridge is going to both smell <clears throat> and taste like onions. That's just what they do. But if you take those same onions and put them in a compartment, a Tupperware, a, a freezer bag, and you seal it up, put them in the fridge, suddenly that, that protects them. It keeps them from infecting everything else in the fridge. Okay, so that, that's what we could see like compartmentalizing something. The problem, however, is that very often we try to do the exact same thing in our lives, spiritually speaking, which is exactly what Jezebel here is advocating for in Thyatira. She's saying, listen, you can maintain your faithfulness to Jesus and participate in the idolatry of the trade guild just simply by, 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 by placing them in separate compartments. Just, just, just They're not going to affect each other. You just keep this one over here and your worship life is over here and it's fine. They, they're not going to bother each other. But compartmentalization, as Jeff Bjork notes, is the means by which we maintain the illusion of both ends. And this is most definitely an illusion. In this case, anyway, you can't have it both ways. This is exactly the both and illusion that Elijah was confronting on Mount Carmel, and it's the illusion Jesus is confronting here in the church at Thyatira. You can't have both. They can't live together in the same fridge. 
And so in light of that, that that, that ever-present reality and really threats to our faithfulness to Jesus, the question we need to be able to look at in our own lives and honestly assess is, okay, what am I continuing to tolerate in my life right now that is threatening my faithfulness to Jesus because I've given in to this teaching of Jezebel? That is, like, what sinful, idolatrous thoughts, practices, habits uh, am I allowing to remain in my life because I've compartmentalized my faith life from my everyday life, my, my Sunday morning life with my rest of the week life, as though they were these two separate things. Now hear me, listen, this is not at all a call to spiritual perfection. Listen, you got to get this perfect or, or Jesus is done with you. No, like that, none of us are going to live up to that level of perfection in our life, although that should be our, our aim that we strive for. But it is absolutely to call us to remember that our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, is not blind to all those compartments of unfaithfulness we try to maintain in our lives simply because we've closed the fridge door, as it were. He sees them plainly, and at every turn and at every step, he calls us to repentance. He calls us to return to faithfulness to him, him, which will mean removing those things we've tried to compartmentalize in our lives that we know will infect everything. He's saying... You need to remove those things, which means really surrendering the illusion of both hands by removing those things. Recognizing that our faith life cannot be compartmentalized from the rest of our life. They're they're not separate things. And no, no, that's not at all to say there won't be consequences as well as cost involved in doing so. But it is to say, as Elijah said to God's people on Mount Carmel, Carmel, uh, contrary to the Jezebel of his day, Your faithfulness to God requires a single, determined, dedicated choice of him alone. Else, we are not truly being faithful at all. Okay. So that's the seductive appeal of Jezebel. The last thing I want to look at with you now is the just demands of love. The just demands of love. And it's important that we look at this aspect of what Jesus writes to the church at Thyatira again because in contrast to the church at Ephesus the church in Thyatira here is praised for its increase in love he's not saying you lost love it's you you, you've got that love and and you're increasing in it and the good works that grow out of it he's commending them for that the issue I want to look at quickly is to examine however whether or not along with compartmentalizing their faith the church was not also allowing their desire to be loving to keep them from dealing decisively with this false teacher in their midst as they needed to. And here's the thing, how Jesus is teaching the church at Thyatira to do this, showing them what love truly looks like, and he's teaching us this today as well, is, is, is in the way that he responds to Jesus, the way that he responds to Jezebel himself. That's, that's how he's showing the church what love truly looks like. He's saying, this is how I'm, I'm going to deal with Jezebel, how they should. Look again with me, first of all, at verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, now that shows us, just as we saw a few weeks ago with God's description of himself in Exodus 34, that the God who is abounding in steadfast love is also merciful and slow to anger. That's what he's like. Okay? So he's not, God, God is not some vengeful, hair-trigger, fly-off-the-handle kind of God who's just like watching her every moment and just waiting to like throw down thunderbolts and zap us anytime we do anything wrong. No. 
That's not what God's like. His, his loving response, look, even to our grave error, is to reveal our sinfulness, reveal those places of danger and error, and then point us back to himself, give us time to, to repent. He gives us time to work through these things. And actually for me, I, actually te- I kind of detect a tone of sadness in Jesus' words here as he notes Jezebel's refusal to repent. Similar to the way that Jesus, uh, he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem that was about to put him to death in Matthew 23, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. However, uh, th- this time given to repent, uh, it's, it's not forever, right? It's not just like, hey, just take all the time you need. Like, it's not an indefinite time. There is a, there is a limit to the time period. So we'll look next now at Jesus' still loving response to Jezebel after her refusal to repent. Verses 22 and 23 says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulations unless They repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now notice, first of all, Jesus says there, he begins by saying, behold. Behold, just a word that means like, like, look at this, like church, watch this, Take, take notice of this church. And then he goes on to describe the just right response to what amounts to disease, to like a spreading gangrene in his bride, the church. Again, using the very same language and imagery of marriage and unfaithfulness to describe her works and those who follow them. The main point being, listen, Jezebel cannot be tolerated among you. If she refuses to repent, she must be removed decisively along with any remaining odor of her teaching. It's dangerous to the very life of your church. It needs to be removed, says Jesus. Which, I mean, it sounds, especially given the language, I mean, it's a strong imagery and language Jesus is using, it sounds like it's not loving really at all. It sounds wrathful and vengeful. You didn't do it? Okay, coming in, wreck shop. No, but, but at the same time, even in feeling that, I think that reveals the very mistaken understanding and definition of love that Jesus is seeking to address in this church, as though love equals inaction. Truly loving just means doing nothing. Like, because nowhere else in the world do you see this happen, right? You don't see that anywhere else in the world like a, a judge that allowed a, con, a, a convicted, known sex offender to continue to work in a, I don't know, like a summer camp or a school, even after they'd been exposed as that's what they were doing, <clears throat> in, 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 in the guise of being loving to them, is not being loving either to the victims or protecting potential future victims from that person. If you reveal, hey, this is what you're doing, and and you don't get that person out of there, they're not changing their ways, how is that being loving to everyone else who's being affected and damaged and destroyed by this person's continued actions? No, the the loving response is to get that person out of there. They need to be removed if they're not going to change their ways. I mean, and so the exact same thing here, that the crime to be loving demands a just response. And we get that in a situation like this. And yet, again and again, over and over again, particularly in Canada, <coughs> you keep hearing this idea today that loving people just means accepting anything and everything they might want to do or say or, or feel or promote 
doesn't matter. Like, like that, that, that if you don't accept all opinions as equally valid and true and right, then that means you're not being loving. You're being hateful. But just as we saw with that example, with that sex offender working in a camp or a school, no, if loving someone just means tolerating anything they say or do, well, your opinion is just as valid as anyone else's. That just destroys and dismantles and undermines the entire structures of justice and a just society. No, true love demands a just response. That's what Jesus is revealing them to. That's what love truly looks like. And in the very same way, Jesus is saying to the church then, as well as today, loving someone who is in error, loving someone who is teaching, even teaching error like this, doesn't mean that you just sit there, judge, jury, and executioner over them. Well, you did something wrong, or you're out of here. No, and, and not giving them time and help and encouragement coming alongside them in order to help them repent once their error is being clearly pointed out. No, but neither does, it, neither does love mean just allowing their destructive teaching and behavior to continue once they plainly just demonstrated that they're not going to change, that they're not going to repent. Loving then looks like removing them, not tolerating their presence, not tolerating their teaching. So I think, firstly, the call of Jesus here is to rightly define love. That's what he's saying. First, you need to rightly define what love means, both as individuals as well as altogether as a church, to be gracious, to be slow to anger and response to error, yes, but also to respond appropriately and decisively whenever that gracious and patient call to repentance is not heeded. That's what love truly looks like, says Jesus. But the second call of Jesus here is to rightly define error. You got to be able to rightly define error, which, and this is where I think again that comparison between the letter to the church at Ephesus with the letter to the church at Thyatira, that comparison can actually help us here, because the clear indication from the church at Ephesus is that they knew the truth of God's word well. They they could easily spot false teachers in their midst and point them out. The problem, however, was that their knowledge of the truth was completely devoid of love. It says you've lost the love you had at first, and so all that truth. Ability to point out false teachers, you've lost the love. That makes you, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And yet, the pendulum just seems to have swung to the extreme opposite end in the church of Thyatira now. Because although they were praised for their love, praised for their good works, they seemed to be so ignorant of the truth of God's word that these false teachers not only existed among them, but they were being tolerated in the church. Which means ultimately, like, you hear this kind of thing today, it's, just, it's not sufficient to just say, well, I don't know about all that, that fancy theology and doctrine stuff. For me, a person, I just try to love people like Jesus did. No, you, you can't say that. that that's, that's actually the very attitude that led Ahab and this church in Thyatira to tolerate Jezebel. We need to be able to rightly define what love means. What do you mean by that? And we also need a knowledge of God's word so that we can see error. We can see uh, destructive teaching when it comes in and, and know how we need to get that. That's harming people. We need, we need both of those things. Which, listen, the point in the end is not to decide. We don't have to decide between either loving people or, or, or knowing the truth. I mean, that's like saying, well, which wing of the air, airplane is more important? Now, you kind of need both of them. You need both. What Jesus is trying to show us here is that it's, in this case, it's not an either-or thing. It is a both-and. This is the case where you need both. We need to love people, and we need to know the truth. He's saying, yes, know my word and know me incredibly well so that you can identify dangerous error when it arises, but also 
be incredibly loving in the way you live that truth out and be incredibly loving in the way you address error whenever you see it and love rightly defined. The seductive appeal of Jezebel's teaching in the end is a compartmentalized faith that falsely promises the best of both worlds while ultimately delivering the best of neither. The call of Jesus is to know him and his word well enough that we can rightly define Jezebel's teaching, uh, both we can see it in our own lives, we can see it in the life of our church and in others, and then to, to on our own, together, whatever, to repent, to, to, to turn and return to faithfulness in every place we find it, to root it out in order to truly be loving and faithful in our relationship to Jesus. That's what the call of this message is. So as the Spirit is speaking to this church, to our church today, how about you? How, how is the Spirit speaking directly to you through this word in, some, in, in a way that you need to have a need in your life today? My prayer has been and continues to be and is even in this moment that the Spirit would be speaking directly to you exactly as you individually are hearing this in need to, to hear what's being said to you. Maybe for some of you, the need is, is to know Jesus, to know his word better so that, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 14, we might continue to mature in our faith and no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Maybe that's the area of need the Spirit is pointing out to you. Maybe for others of you, uh, the need is to get a lot better at what, what Paul says we need to do in the, the very next verse, uh, namely speaking the truth in love. We've got the truth down, but we don't have the loving part down. Maybe that's where the call of the Spirit is to you today. But I have no doubt, listen, that, that, that the Spirit, the way he's speaking to each and every one of us, the, the need that he's identifying that is and will always remain is to guard ourselves against the seductive appeal of Jezebel's teaching in our own lives and in the life of our church. To just be ruthlessly honest with ourselves as well as with one another wherever we see compartmentalizing our faith life from our day-to-day -day life and, and imagining that we can avoid having to choose between faithfulness to Jesus and acceptance from the world. Very often these two things come into conflict with, with, with one another and we need to decide in the end, just as Elijah said, who are we going to serve? Who are we going to be faithful to? the hopeful promise of Jesus here to the one who conquers, to the one who keeps his loving works to the end. Look there at verses 26 through 28. The promise is that the same flaming eyes of the Son of God that see unfaithfulness also see every act of faithfulness. From the greatest to the smallest of good works to the smallest of faithful acts. Listen, even if no one else ever sees even if no one else ever cheers or applauds, he sees. Which is why Jesus says to each one of the churches and every one of the letters, I know, I'm right here in your midst, I know, I see, and I will reward faithfulness to me. And although, yeah, you look around you today, very similar to the days of the Church of Thyatira, you, see, you look around, you see that the trade guilds of our day, that the political powers appear to rule the day presently, offering us momentary pleasures in exchange for divided loyalty. Jesus promised to each one of us is that the cost of faithfulness to him today 
will be more than rewarded in a far greater way on the day that he returns. When we are granted both authority, he says, to rule alongside him, as well as the gift of Jesus himself. That's what that, uh, you will be given the, the morning star. If you look at the end of Revelation, that's how Jesus defines himself. He says, I am the bright and morning star. It means we'll be given Jesus himself. What greater gift, what greater reward could we possibly be given? Church, may we be those who can say with the Apostle Paul, whatever the cost of faithfulness to Jesus today, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. For the things that are unseen are eternal. May it be so. Amen. Amen.